Hey, well, good morning again. Of course, it is great to be with you in your living rooms or in your travel trailer. I think somebody is over in Hawaii right now, and they're watching on the beach, so we are all very envious of that right now. You, Jesus, and Redemption Church all on the beach together. That is great. So we will live vicariously through you, my friend Sean. So anyway, before we get underway, just a couple of things. I know Trent and Dana were talking about meeting this summer. And again, I just want to back that up too and say, you know what? It is going to be so important for us as a church to kind of get back to some of our old rhythms and norms, because it's going to be very tempting for some of us to be like, man, it's been nice to just roll out of bed and watch church. And for those of you who are like that, that's probably a little bit more like me, a bit of an introvert in some ways, uh, it's going to be important for us to re-engage together. So that's going to be huge. And, that, and I think especially, too, because, again, uh, like Trent was sharing when he was on his trip this last week, there's just something about being together physically. We've longed to do that. We're starting to get the opportunities to do that. So make sure it becomes a priority. Even with your travels this summer, I have no doubt that everybody's going to be like, whoa, we finally get to go do stuff. We can go to some other part of the country and actually eat without a mask on our face or whatever else. Like, it's going to be an exciting time to kind of cut loose finally. But also, it needs to be a time that we want to protect our fellowship together. So that's one thing. The second thing, don't forget, we have an app, we have notes, and the notes you can follow along today. And then we also have excellent children's ministry material that we pump out every single week. And then that's why we're looking forward to this summer is because finally we'll have kids ministry again. We'll be doing that out of the hub as the adults meet out on the lot. So we're just creating a lot of different options. None of it is as perfect as we would like, but you know what? That's an opportunity. Everything teaches. And so that's going to be an opportunity as well. So all kinds of stuff I wanted to keep you apprised of right there. Now, right now, I'm going to go ahead and pray. I'm going to have our hearts get prepared, not just for today, but really for the next three weeks. I think as we're going to see this unfold, we'll see some things that are really important for us and pertinent. And so I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to dive right in. So if you would join me, that'd be awesome. Jesus, um, I thank you that you are patient with us. I thank you that in the covenant of grace that you establish in our lives, it's not merely the grace that saves us, but it's the grace that grows us. It's the grace that one day will complete us. And because our lives are literally buried with you, we were somehow in you on the cross, Paul says in Galatians 2. Because of that, our lives are now caught up in you. They are, they are in you in a way that we can't fully comprehend. But from that, I pray that we are motivated to seek you, to be like you, to long for you, to, to say, I don't want to disappoint you, not because I have this sense of shame involved in that, but because rather I love you so much. I'm so committed to what it is you're seeking to do. I want to obey you because it brings beauty and flourishing to the world and it brings blessing and benefit to our own lives in the process. So I pray that as we are looking at some of your warnings that you bring forth in the Gospel of Luke, that we will take these to heart in a unique type of way, not in a way that says, oh, am I saved, but rather in a way that says, am I being everything I can be because I'm saved? And so Jesus, we ask that you would guide us in those things today. We ask that your spirit would speak and teach in loud and powerful ways. So we look to you, we love you, we need you, and we thank you so much in your good and perfect name. Amen. All right, so this morning we are in Luke chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to approach this in kind of a weird way as you will see it unfold. Now, as you're on your way to Luke chapter 13, you can open up to that, tap to that. You can do whatever thing you do to get to that. But as you do so, I want to give you right now an emotional pop quiz, all right? Now, you can tap into your intellect. That's totally cool, but this is really meant to be like this visceral first response, this intuitive thing. When you hear a certain word, I want you to think through what it is your first reaction is. Matter of fact, let me give you two words. The first word is the word religion. When you hear the word religion, 
Is that a word that you go, hey, that's a positive word? Or do you go, that's a little bit more negative? Do you think it's helpful in the world or do you think it's hurtful? Is it a blessing or is it a curse? Right? Just whatever your kind of initial response is, that's what I want you to think about. Religion, how do you they feel about that? Now here's the other word, repent. When you hear the word repent, is your initial reaction something where you go, that's a word of freedom? Or is it, well, that's kind of a word of shame? Do you see it as a word that gives you opportunity or is it a word that is about judgment? When somebody says repent, do you relax? Or do you sort of tense up inside? See, I think this is really, really important because it's those two words, repent and religion, that are really going to be much of the context of the next three weeks and certainly is the context of Luke chapter 13, religion and repentance. Because what we're going to see, and it's going to kind of start off this morning, is that Jesus is calling religion to repent. He's looking straight at the religious leaders, straight at the crowds who tend to follow the the religious standards and norms, and he's saying, in the context of your religion, there needs to be a standard of repentance. Now, this has been true throughout the Gospel of Luke. It's like with each contact point between Jesus and the religious leaders, you're getting this sense where they think they've got it together, and Jesus is looking at them saying, you've got almost nothing in order and on point in accordance with what God wants. You're, you're all over the map. You're doing things that aren't pleasing to God, but you think you're pleasing God. And from that, he's going to keep turning up the heat that says they need to consider their actions, and they need to do things in a different sort of way. Now, here's the thing about repentance that is so critical. It's got two aspects to it. When it comes to this idea, we need to, quote, repent of something, but we also need to repent to something. So it's a little bit like that scene in Indiana Jones, right, where he's trying to go for the golden idol and he's got to change it out with a sandbag, right? You have to take away and then add something. If you just take away and you don't add, you have a problem. You have to do a switch in that sense. And so when Jesus is looking at people and he says to them, you need to do things differently, they need to take something out of their life and they need to put something in in its place. That's the heart of all of this. Now, here's this kind of technical point. So when it comes to Luke chapter 13, uh, it's structured in an interesting sort of way. Like Luke started to think in terms of being like a poet or thinking through things with a certain type of technical structure in the chapter. So this is called a chiasmus when we talk about theology and you're like, okay, now he's talking Greek. Well, literally I am. So chiasmus is the word for crossing basically, or it's a derivative of the word crossing. And when somebody would write this chiasmus, it looks like a poetic structure where it's duplicated. So you kind of descend in a certain order and then you come back out in reverse in the same order, just backwards. That's what a chiasmus is all about. So right now I'm going to take you over to the TV. Uh, This is the best way I thought I could try to explain it. I'd rather kind of show it. That's a better way to do it. And so again, we have kind of the thesis statement that chapter 13 opens up with. So Luke is recording Jesus, but structuring this so we kind of understand that there is a bullseye to the chapter. So the way it starts off, though, is religion must repent. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 5 this morning. But then he says, well, repent how? Repent of what? Well, it's of fruitless religion, which is going to be toward the beginning of the chapter, and of forsaken religion toward the end of the chapter. It will be of loveless religion that's going to be kind of in the middle, and of lost religion, which is on the opposite side of the middle. 
but it's repenting of, and in its place, it's repenting to something else. And the thing it repents to is a new kind of kingdom that is very different than the way religion understood things. And that new kind of kingdom, Jesus will say, it's like mustard and it's like dough. And we're going to be like, oh, how is that any good? Well, we'll have to wait till week three. So Today, we're going to deal with religion must repent and those C's. And then as we move forward, we'll deal with some of the other things. But again, like I said, the chapter starts off like a college thesis paper. It's like Jesus says, there's the big idea. And then I'm going to unpack the big idea to what's most important in life. And so he starts it off in verse one. It says, about this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some of the people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. So he says, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Is that why they suffered? Not at all. He says, you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and you turn to God. He says, and what about the 18 people who died in the tower of Siloam when it fell on them? Were they worse sinners in Jerusalem? No, I tell you again, that unless you repent, you will also perish. Now we're going to stop there for a second, kind of look at that chunk. And we want to break two things out here. The first, we want to break out the cultural idea. And then we also want to break out the textual idea, right? Because there's both things that are really in play in what Jesus is talking about, right? Cultural and kind of this idea of textual. There's a word here or a couple of words that are important to unpack. So I want to start with the words actually first. So the textual idea here starts with the word repent. Now, when you hear that word, it's what I pop quizzed you on earlier. What is your reaction? See, I ask that because I think there's been this thing sort of in the modern church context the last several decades, where it's like this, this word that's designed to shame the morally inappropriate right? Like it has a hostility attached to it. Like you picture that Southern Baptist in his pulpit pounding away, you repent, don't perish, right? Like there's this strength and velocity and like, man, I'm pointing the finger at you and you're a terrible person unless you repent or you're going to die kind of thing. And like, that's the way we sort of understand the tone of it. But the word repent is a very interesting word when we look at its original language. It simply means, here you go, to think different. When Jesus is starting this off, looking at the religious leaders and the crowds that follow them, he says, I'm going to start asking you guys to look at the world in a different way, right? I want you to reassess everything you've held dear. I want you to rethink everything that you have prioritized because I'm going to bring before you a challenge that is very different than the way you've been doing things. And it's going to seem upside down and backwards, but really what Jesus is doing is trying to right side the world because the world's upside down and backwards, including religion. It is also upside down and backwards. And so Jesus is saying, unless you begin to rethink God and law and life and love, you are going to go down a road that's a dead end. And that dead end means you will perish. And quite literally, what he's saying is the nation, the system, everything that they hold dear will come to a conclusion. That word perish means to be fully destroyed, right? To be permanently canceled and ceased. See, so he's trying to get their attention and he's trying to warn them and understand in this, he's not angry at them. He's not like just wagging the finger and spittle is shooting out and he's got just red eyes. It's not that. As we will see at the end, because again, we've got this interesting structure. There's a heart behind this where Jesus cares deeply. So he's trying to just appeal to them 
to deconstruct the way they understand things and then reconstruct things in light of kind of the person and presence of Jesus and what it is Jesus emphasizes and prioritizes for their lives. And so again, from a textual perspective, a word perspective, he's saying rethink before everything comes to a crashing halt in your life because it will. Now, the other thing that's important is to understand kind of the context here from a cultural perspective. Because it's a weird kind of set of things, right? He says, do you really think that these people were worse sinners? Do you really think this other group was worse sinners than you? Here's the reason they thought kind of in this context. For the Jewish people in the first century, their ideas were very basic. If you were a bad person, bad things happened to you. And if you were a good person, good things happened to you. So they derive this out of Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God says, if you obey me, I will bless you. You will have thriving crops and tons of kids and great peace in the land. And it's all going to be awesome. And it's nothing but flourishing. But he says, if you disobey me, well, then it's going to be cursing and your crops will die and you will not have offspring and you'll be at constant war. And it's this terrible thing. And so the first century pharisaical system and all the religious leaders that were sort of encapsulated in Israel, they took this idea of blessing and cursing and applied it to everything. So their idea was, hey, if those pilgrims died at the hands of Pilate, it must've been because they were bad people. Bad people have bad things happen to them because God isn't protecting them. And if some tower fell on a bunch of people, well, that must have been they weren't as good as normal people because only bad things happen to bad people. And by consequence, the leaders and the people would think, hey, if nothing bad's happening to me, if I'm protected, if I'm prospering, if I'm doing all right and everything else, it must be because I'm a good person and God is protecting me because of my goodness. Right? So they had an almost Jewish type of karma system that they sort of had bought into. That is until Jesus rolls in. And he looks them square in the eye. And he says, I know you think you're good because you've got it all together. You think you're good because you do the law. You think you're good because you go to synagogue. You think you're good because you give your sacrifices. You think you're good, but in reality, you must repent. Do you really think you are better than those people that died? The ones the pilot took, the ones that the tower fell on. Do you really think you're better? Because if you do, eventually your glory is going to be your shame your perceived sense of blessings are going to become your curses and your power will perish unless you think differently. And so in this strange sort of way, here are these people listening and they're thinking, we're God honoring, we're Bible believing, we're holiness promoting. And then Jesus says, yeah, 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 I know you think you are, but unless you repent, it's all over for you. It's all over. So I can't help but think, like one of those religious persons at the time and think this is not only a shocking indictment, this is scandalous because this is insulting. Like, doesn't Jesus know who we are? Doesn't Jesus know what we do? Doesn't Jesus know how we give? I mean, he talked about that in some of the previous stuff of Luke. He's like, I get it. You give 10% of everything. You think you got it together. You think you're honoring God, but in reality, you're fruitless and you're godless. In the name of God, thinking you're bearing fruit, you're really these things. So it was the worst type of religion. It was the kind of religion that thought it was doing all the good things, but it was doing it in all sorts of bad ways. And it didn't matter how much they affirmed scripture, how much they defended purity, how much they were advancing Yahwehism as they understood it. Jesus says, man, you've got to look at what you're doing and do it differently because it's really a road to destruction. So godless and fruitless. 
that now brings us to that structure that I talked about in Luke, where he's got the thesis statement. The thesis statement is unless you repent, you think different, you will end, you will perish. And so then he begins to just build that out. And he's going to talk about the problem of their fruitlessness, right? And he tells it with an illustration. It says in verse six, then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there has not been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. But then the gardener answered and said, sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. And if not, well, then you can cut it down. See, Jesus is telling the story as a type of indictment. He says, you need to repent because you think you're fruitful, but you're actually fruitless. Now, here's the thing that's really important. This is not new, right? So if we go all the way back into the Old Testament, we go back to the message of Isaiah. You look at the first five chapters of Isaiah from chapter one to chapter five. You see in chapter five, the God says, Israel, I planted you as a vineyard. So God is the vineyard owner and Israel's the vineyard. And he says, I planted you to bring fruitfulness to the world. But if we go back to chapter one, we see the problem of the vineyard in chapter five. And in chapter one, he says, you know what? Here's what you guys do. You give your sacrifices, you give your offerings, you give incense, you pray, you have new moons, you have Sabbath, you do all the external things. He says, but I didn't plant you just to do those things and nothing else. He says, the problem is I planted you to do the real deep things, like to care about justness for the oppressed, to care about the widow, to care about the orphan, to care about the disenfranchised, to do right things in right ways from a right heart, because that is the fruitfulness of the vineyard of chapter five. He says, but I didn't get that fruit. He says, I got, I got thorns and thistles. I didn't get the figs that I was seeking. I didn't get the fruitfulness that I was seeking from Israel. If Israel was to be fruitful in that way, God says, I will bless you incredibly. But if you are not fruitful, I will end you and curse you and, and finalize you because you're not a vineyard that's doing anything good. So that was 700 years before, right? So picture that. People wonder if God is patient sometimes. 700 years is a lot of patience, right? So God says this through the prophet Isaiah and then for hundreds of years continues to work in the vineyard, to till the soil, to fertilize it, to bless it, to help it. And then you read through all the other minor prophets where they're like, Israel, come on, wake up. You're not caring about the widow. You're not caring about the orphan. You're not caring about the sojourner and the foreigner. You're not caring about justice. You're not caring about mercy. You're not caring about the love of God. Please wake up. Time and again, prophets would come, wake up, wake up, wake up. And every time they'd kill a prophet, slap him down, kick them to the side, whatever else, right? But for all of that period of time, right? And so now, after 700 years, you have the last prophet. Not just any prophet, but literally the son of the vineyard owner comes to the vineyard. And there he is pleading with them to learn anew, to think fresh and again, to do things different, to repent of their pride, to repent of their religion, to, to really repent of their self-righteousness and, and self-strength that they were exercising, that they would stop caring about law over love or purity rights over people's needs or caring about this idea of kind of promoting the name of God, but, but doing it in a way that was in fact godless. Jesus is just saying, please wake up, do it different. Because this is the final season. Matter of fact, remember how 
his message starts, the ax is laid to the root. This is just a continuation of what he's trying to get Israel to realize, what he wants the religious leaders to realize. Now, what we know from both the Gospels and history is that Israel did not turn and they did not think different. They stayed the course, they remained in their religion, they did not repent, and from it, it breaks Jesus' heart. And you see that at the very end of the chapter. So again, our structure on the seas is, he says repent, and he tells a story about a tree, and it's fruitless. And then at the end of the chapter, he talks about that nation not only as fruitless, but ultimately kind of godless in the process. And again, like I said, it breaks his heart. Now it starts in verse 31. It says, at that time, some Pharisees said to him, get away from here if you want to live. Herod Antipas, he wants to kill you. Now I'm gonna stop right there for a second because this might throw you off a little bit, but I wanna talk about two things really quick. The first is this, that was probably totally true, right? In that region, rebellions would kind of spark against the Roman occupation. And so I'm sure Herod is hearing about this dude out in the desert and in the cities that is gathering crowds and people are getting very excited. Things are swelling. And this guy keeps talking about a new kingdom, right? If you're a political leader and you're trying to keep the kingdom of Rome in order and then some other dude is talking about, hey, we're going to start a new kingdom. It's going to be rad. It's going to be unlike anything the world's ever seen. As a political leader, you're like, yeah, that's a coming civil war. That's a rebellious dude that I need to basically deal with. Revolutionaries, were, were killed a dime a dozen in this region because they just didn't want to deal with problems. So I'm sure Herod wants to kill him. So probably totally true. At the same time, what's interesting is you go, wow, these Pharisees care about Jesus suddenly. They're wanting to do him a solid by warning him that Herod wants to kill him. Now, realistically, what they're saying is, Jesus, he wants to kill you. You should run away, far away, go away, where nobody will ever find you again. That'd be awesome if you left forever, right? So what they're doing in, in kind of modern speak is they're pulling a scar from the Lion King. Run away, Simba. Far away. Right? That's what they're doing to Jesus. They're thinking, he'll run away because he's freaked out by this kind of political leader. What I love about Jesus is that Jesus is meek. He's meek. And meek means strength under control. Jesus can hear a threat. And he doesn't have his heart race and break a sweat and his palms get all kind of just sticky and he's like, oh, what am I gonna do next? No, Jesus is meek. He has absolute strength under total control. And so when they say, hey, he wants to kill you, Jesus replied. He says, go tell that fox that I'll keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And the third day I will accomplish my purpose. Yes, today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must proceed on my way. For it wouldn't do for a prophet of God to be killed except in Jerusalem. It's like, boom, Mary didn't raise no coward, right? Like he's not afraid. But what's interesting here is a couple of things. First of all, he calls Herod a fox. And you're like, wow, Jesus is cutting people down. I guess he's okay with that, right? Or he's saying like uh, Herod is some kind of uh, sly individual. Well, actually, it's interesting. In, in their particular culture during that time, uh, this was sort of like a way of talking about a person where the person thought, I'm a lion, Right? And so the Jews would say, he thinks he's a lion, but really he's just a fox. He thinks he's the apex predator of all of the jungle, so to speak. But he's just a cute little creature that gets little things on the ground. Right? He's not that big. He's not that major. In other words, what Jesus is kind of saying about Herod is he's got like little dog syndrome. Right? You met those little dogs that are just, think they can destroy anything. You're like, you're cute. Boop, 
You know, like that's the way it is. Well, that's kind of the way Jesus is referring to Herod. In fact, if anything, what he's kind of getting at is saying, you know what, this guy thinks he's awesome. Well, who died and made Herod emperor? Nobody. The emperor is still the emperor. This guy is just a little fish in a cosmic pond. Because more importantly, this guy that's threatening to kill Jesus will do nothing until God decides he wants it done. So Jesus isn't trying to be insulting of Herod. He's just simply stating what's real. This guy can bark and yell and and be as loud as he wants to be about how he's going to come and get me, but it doesn't change anything. I am going to do exactly what I'm meant to do. So he's saying, I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to do God's will. I'm going to heal. I'm going to preach. I'm going to care. I'm going to invest. I'm going to bear the fruit that Israel was supposed to bear. But you notice in the passage, he's saying, and I will bear even the fruit of the sins of the world. I will bear the offenses of all humanity in my life in my death on the cross. I will go and die in Jerusalem. Herod is not going to kill me here in Galilee or on the way to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem and there I will give myself poured out as an offering for the world. Now, what I think is interesting in this is no sooner does Jesus utter the word Jerusalem. I meant to go to Jerusalem. I will die like a prophet in Jerusalem. That that word Jerusalem triggers in him something strange. It triggers grief. It triggers tears and sadness and weeping. In fact, it literally says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So he pivots. It's like he says it, and then it just strikes him in his chest. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's a Hebrew way of lament. He's mourning. He's crying. He's weeping. He says, it's the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But you wouldn't let me. He says, and now look, your house is abandoned. It's godless. He says, and you will never see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. See, fruitless, it leads to godless. And you think about it all, right? God's been reaching out for hundreds of years. He's been tilling the soil. He's been fertilizing the hearts of Israel. He says, okay, that's not enough. I will send my son in this last iteration, this final year in essence, I will send my very own son. And Jesus, again, he touches, he teaches, he heals, he liberates, he displays the love of God in an inbreaking kingdom. And in this, Jesus warns and he pleads and now he weeps because he knows that the end is near. He knows that the ruin is coming. See, a couple of things about this as we sort of close this out. Two things that I think are maybe lessons for today. There's really going to be lessons as we get to the bullseye of the middle of the chapter. But two things stood out as I was just kind of processing this in my own life. I think the first is this idea of adopting the, the tone of the text. So I think the tone is really critical because when Jesus says, repent, you see his heart when it comes to using that word at the end when he's weeping over the people. And he's weeping over them because he says, I wanted to gather you like a mother gathers. See, there's a tenderness in that. I, this is why I always want to go back and go, what's the tone of something? Because I think sometimes as Christians, we could read the beginning of this chapter and be like, see, Jesus is chewing them out. Jesus is in their face. He wants them to realize just how crappy they are. And yet Jesus' heart is, no, I want to gather you. 
I'm hurting for you. I'm broken for the fact that your doom is coming. I don't want that doom for you. See, that's the tone that we want to embrace as we think about going into our world and calling people to repent. We're calling people, hey, think about life differently. Think about your conditions differently. Think about your God differently, right? I just want you to think different because Jesus offers a kingdom that is very different than what you're used to in this world. So think differently. And when we say think differently to people, because that's what repentance is all about, some people will reject us. They'll say, I don't like your message. I don't like your ideas. I don't like what that's about. And when that happens, what our heart is, is Jesus's heart. We should weep. We're too easily offended. We're too easily bothered by disbelieving people, by people who reject our faith. Jesus weeps over people that are rejecting his kingdom. We should have the same heart because our heart should not ultimately want to be right. Our heart should want it that other people are made right with God. That should be our heart. When people reject, step away, deconstruct, whatever, we should weep for them. We should long to see them gathered just like a mother gathers her chicks. So that was the first thing that stood out to me. The second thing that stood out to me is that Jesus is warning religious people about the danger of fruitlessness and godlessness. And I actually believe that's still a warning that even the church should take to heart, maybe not in an exact sort of way, but sort of in a related kind of way. In fact, in the book of Romans, chapter 9 through 11, Paul is writing about Israel. He says, Israel has been abandoned in essence by God during that time. And it was for the purpose of reaching the nations. And so God's got an ultimate purpose and even the hardening of Israel to reach all of us. And so because that happened, it's why you and I are here and we're going through the Bible right now. That's why it happened. So he says that in chapter nine and he goes into chapter 10, he kind of unpacks that more. Then he gets to chapter 11 and Paul warns the Roman church and all Christians. He says, listen, Israel was cut off because of its rebellion against God. It was fruitless and it was godless in the name of religion. He says, but be careful because the same Lord who can cut that branch can cut our branch. It causes us to think about things in terms of humility. And remember that we're rescued by the grace of God. And in that wanting to do things because we are grateful for what God has done. So the warning is still there, not in the sense of, oh, we could lose our salvation. It's not about that. I don't think that's the heart behind that. Like, I don't have security. No, you have security. I think the heart behind this is, again, just realizing, you know what? I don't want to become like what they became. I don't want to become a self-righteous person in the name of Jesus. I don't want to be a person that says, I'm saved by grace, but I exercise no grace to the people around me that I talk about the Bible is truth, but then I don't love my enemies. I don't turn the other cheek. I don't go the extra mile. I'm not the least, and that's the greatest. Like, no, we want to be a people to say, I, I want to take it seriously. I, I don't want to worship this book more than I worship the one who wrote this book. I, I don't want to criticize people more than I care about people. I don't want to be the person that's just complaining about how life is as opposed to rejoicing no matter how life is, right? Like embodying the stuff that Jesus calls us to because that makes us a different type of people. That makes us a nation that represents the spirit of his kingdom. Israel didn't want to embrace that. And from that, it was their doom. Jesus says, man, but this is my kingdom. See, what I love about Jesus and what he's getting at, and we'll see by the time we get to the center of this chapter in two weeks, is that Jesus is ultimately building a different kind of kingdom. And he invites us to follow a very different kind of king. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, we are always going to be tempted to be self-interested. 
we're going to be tempted to complain. We're going to be tempted to worry. We're going to be tempted to fret about life. We're going to be tempted to forget. And yet in your grace, you hold us strong. You hold us complete. But we also know in this, as we've been learning, that your privileges given to us have, again, responsibilities that are connected to those privileges. You seek something of us. Not that we're working to be saved, not that we're working to maintain salvation. That's your job. You save us, you secure us, you complete us. But we want to live fully in you. We do not want to get to that final banquet that we learned about where it's like, uh, there's no seat, right? We're in heaven, but we're out of the reward ceremony, so to speak. No, we want to live lives that seek your reward because it's a tribute to you. It's a tribute to your grace. It's a tribute to your goodness. And in that, we are blessed when we live like you. So help us to do that. Help us to embody what it means to really help people see what repentance is, a change of mind, and let us weep when they do not. And may that change of mind then, as we will see, lead to the change of life, because that's what repentance is all about, a change of mind that leads to a change of life. But that change of life is not that we're just moralists, but rather we are kingdom citizens with a kingdom agenda, and that we are taking seriously what it means to give ourselves away in your name. Help us to live that way in your strength, because that's what your kingdom's all about. And in that, we are blessed by you. So Jesus, we look to you to guide us in those things in your good name. Amen.